Well, I must say, I'm delighted that Sajid Javid in the last hour and a half has said there will be no more restrictions in England before the new year. I'm thrilled with that. Uh, we're a long way away from the emergency that Boris Johnson declared a fortnight ago. Numbers in hospital are not going up. This is the right decision. And I'll be discussing that with Marc Francois MP during the Talking Pike section of this show. I have a feeling that backbench conservative rebellion really had a big effect. Now, yesterday was Boxing Day, but it was a Sunday, so the hunt meets took place today. In England, Scotland and Wales, there are between 150 and 200 hunts that regularly meet up. Hunting with dogs has always been controversial. Strong opinions on both sides of the argument. But the Blair government, 15 years ago, brought in legislation forbidding the hunts to actually go and chase and kill foxes with packs of dogs. They now trail hunt. Yes, one or two people have been caught breaking the law, but they are trail hunting. Why there should be any objection to that, I simply don't know. I, I don't get it. And yet, in the last few weeks, the National Trust have banned trail hunting on their land. We've seen all sorts of virtue signalling from councillors um, and councils up and down the country, even though, in many cases, they don't have land or own land over which people hunt. So today, across England, the hunts met. And there was Agro, the Avon Vale hunt group, uh, met down in Wiltshire this morning, and there were some uh, face-offs, violent scenes. Uh, and this happened elsewhere. I've always gone to the Boxing Day hunt meets, and here you can see the kind of thing that goes on. Um, I've always gone to, to, to the Boxing Day hunt meets, basically for the whole of my life. Um, I personally find the tradition, the spectacle, the magnificent dogs, the horses, the whole sense of ceremony, uh, the coming together of rural communities, I find the whole thing magnificent. I mean, I really genuinely do. Uh, you may take a very different view to it. You may say, no, I don't like it. It's outdated. We shouldn't be doing this anymore. I think what upsets me is that those that don't like it uh, don't say, I disagree with you, uh, but you get on and do what you do. There's a lot of things I don't like, but I don't want to ban them. But no, they want to ban it. They even want to now ban trail hunting. And the question, the audience question tonight for you is, should the hunt stay? Should hunts be able to continue to meet, perform their ceremonies and go out and trail hunt? So let me know what you think, please. GBviews at gbnews.uk. You can tweet at gbnews. You can also send in your questions for Barrage the Farage at the end of the show. So it's the intolerance that I don't like. Fox hunting is a minority sport. Trail hunting is a minority sport. But why shouldn't people be allowed to do it? That's the question. Well, joining me now is somebody who feels very strongly about this subject, media and communications manager for PETA, Jennifer White. Jennifer, good evening to you. Good evening. Thank you for having me on. No, not at all. I mean, this has been... You know, for decades, in fact, going back 100 years, uh, fox hunting has been a hugely contentious issue. Uh, you've won, haven't you? You got the Blair government to ban hunting with dogs. Uh, now, of course, we know that every day dogs kill rabbits and kill squirrels, but the actual formality 
of a pack of hounds going out with the intention of hunting foxes. That is against the law. Can you please, Jennifer, tell me? For the life of me, I can't understand why. What is wrong with trail hunting? Well, first of all, um, hunting is animal cruelty. It, it really is as simple as that. Uh, and it is no secret that trail hunting is used as a smokescreen for ah. um, hunters to continue the same practices that they have always been using. You know, they claim that it's a mistake or an accident when, you know, the hounds catch a fox. Um, but yet when you, you think about the process, that these hounds are bred and they are conditioned to learn the smell of foxes. So if you let a pack of these hounds loose in the fox's natural environment, I mean, it's unbearably predictable that, of course, they will pick up the scent of a real fox uh, and then get distracted from the, the fake trail that was laid. Uh, and, you know, that's why we saw last year when the footage leaked from the Fox Hounds Association of the Senior Hunters encouraging other hunters to lay more trails, to yeah. back up their insurance, you know, to, to make sure that they can prove that there was these fake trails being laid. You know, that's why the National Trust has banned the hunting on their land, uh, because it's so glaringly obvious what's I, going Jen on Jennifer, the scene. I, I accept there are some people that have broken the law, all right? Just as uh, there are some people that drive motor cars irresponsibly and dangerously. I accept that. But given that the vast majority of these hunts genuinely are obeying the law, are trail hunting, I just get the feeling that somehow there are many of you uh, in this movement that object to the bright-coloured coats, object to the sense of ceremony, of history, uh, even object to the fact that people actually enjoy riding their horses, you know, through the open countryside and over the hedges. There's something very killjoy, isn't there, about PETA and all that you stand for? Well, I can assure you it's not the coats that we have issue with. Uh, it's the foxes who, I can assure you, there there is almost nothing crueler than setting a pack of hounds on a fox. You know, these hunts can last for hours. Foxes are chased to the point that they've been known to rupture their internal organs while trying to flee from the dogs. Once, the, you know, these poor animals are exhausted, they're trapped into corners, the hounds then rip them apart. You know, studies have shown that foxes have actually been... So I'm sorry, uh, I'm sorry, Jennifer, 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 alive. Jennifer, that's an old, outdated argument. You know, that's 15 years old, no, right? there uh, is and so equally, much And equally, I can counter you by saying, Jennifer, have you ever been into a hen house 10 minutes after a fox has been there? Well, that's really not the point here. The point yes is or no. hunters are going do you into accept? foxes' natural do you accept? environments. Do you foxes accept? Are, we, are, we are entering foxes' natural homes with packs Jennifer, of Jennifer, 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 forget all that. You could argue that with every dog walker that lets their dog loose. You, know, you could argue that whichever way you want. Well, no, do you accept, do you accept for... that fox numbers need controlling, yes or no? Well, there's absolutely nothing that indicates uh, that trail hunting or fox hunting has any impact on... No, 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 no. I'm asking you a separate question. Do you accept right. that foxes need to be controlled? Well, no. I mean, we're <laughs> encroaching on these animals' natural <laughs> habitats. Yeah. Um, and also, you know, to, it, it's not relevant if we're talking here about trail hunting and fox hunting. This is an entirely different thing from humane animal population control, um, you know, like deterrence, um, taking away natural food sources. No, but, um, but I mean, here's the point. Here's the point. All sorts of methods. There are, there are huge numbers of people living in the rural communities, keeping livestock, and, and, and they want fox numbers to be controlled. I accept 
that fox hunting was an inefficient way of doing it. Uh, but whether shooting is actually kinder, given that it's done at night, is a separate question. One last question for you. You know, you've won, as I say. You know, you've banned the practice of hunting with hounds. What are your ambitions for driven bird shoots, pheasant shoots, etc., and indeed angling? What does Petter want to see happen to those sports? Well, just to quickly circle back to the issue of fox hunting, whilst in theory we might have won, the footage that is continuing to show foxes being ripped apart yep. by hounds, terriers going down into the foxes' burrows to corner them, terrify them into, into fleeing, you know, we haven't really won here. And what we saw with the National Trust banning fox hunting, we're hoping is just the first step. The next step is for other private landowners. Yes, and do you want to ban driven game shooting? Do you want to ban yes, driven absolutely. game shooting, there, like grouse shooting, no place, pheasant shooting? There is no, absolutely, there is no place for hunting in modern Britain. We're a nation of animal lovers. Right. Sorry, uh, I, 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 really... I misunderstood the answer. Do you want to ban grouse shooting, pheasant shooting, driven game shooting? Absolutely. Yes, That's good, thank you. Answer. I thought you might yes. say that. And what about angling? There's absolutely no need for people to be putting hooks through the. the I mean, you really are. Can, you really are. Can we not think of some a very extreme organisation involve harming animals? Can I just ask you a question? If people were going out uh, and shooting dogs and cats in the name of fun, or if they're putting hooks through the mouths of dogs well, and cats for fun, we wouldn't be calling it sport. We'd be calling it animal abuse, yeah. and it's the exact same thing when it happens to any other animal. Can I say thank you for giving such honest <laughs> answers? Thank you. Well, there we are. That's Petter. They want to ban pretty much everything. Angling, shooting, they want to ban the lot. They will not rest. And in the end, they'll come for your domestic pets as well. Many of them in that movement don't think we should even be allowed to have domestic pets. Now, one thing that hasn't changed over the course of the last week since I've been away and over the Christmas period is the weather. It's been foggy and calm, and that means the refugee boats, a steady stream of refugee boats, has been coming into Dover. Something like 350, 360 people over the course of the last couple of weeks. Um, these scenes are from over the Christmas period. Indeed, 67 people uh, came into Dover actually on Christmas Day itself. Uh, the last boats came in at half past three this morning before the weather deteriorated. Uh, these will be the last scenes for 2021 that you will see because the weather is really turning windy and nasty. The grand total for the year is 28,500. You see, when I came on here uh, in July and said I thought it could be as high as 30,000, a lot of people thought I was you know, wildly exaggerating the truth of it. Well, as it turns out, I wasn't too far off the mark. And given that nothing has changed, that means the numbers next year could be even bigger. But none of this put off the Archbishop of Canterbury in his Christmas Day message from Canterbury Cathedral saying this. There have been the volunteers who've been on my mind, welcoming and caring for refugees arriving on the beaches so close to this cathedral. And those volunteers are extraordinary people, especially the crews of the RNLI. And they do one thing, save life at sea. It's not politics, it's simply humanity. Well, that was Justin Welby uh, using his Christmas Day message from the cathedral uh, to praise 
uh, those that go out and save lives at sea. Well, that may be fine of itself. Uh, he also used the word refugees, which, of course, is unproven in every single case until there's been a hearing. Uh, but actually, Archbishop, what you've done is to give great cheer, great cheer indeed, to the criminal trafficking gangs who have made tens of millions of euros this year with this trade, uh, and they'll go on making tens of millions next year. I've no doubt there are some in ISIS and other organisations that thoroughly enjoyed what you had to say. Uh, and you talk about compassion. You might not have seen Archbishop. You know, 27 people drowned the other day in the channel. That was following eight deaths in the previous two weeks. And if this continues, a lot more people will drown next year. So surely the compassionate way to do things as a country is to give refuge to those who genuinely qualify, not just to accept anybody that illegally comes across the English Channel. And we know that 90% are young men with no identity discs at all. Archbishop, the numbers next year are going to dwarf 28,000. Uh, perhaps we should show a bit more compassion for those in this country trying to get on council housing lists. Joining me now to discuss this is immigration lawyer Ivan Sampson. Ivan, uh, this issue, and, and thank you for coming on um, over this holiday period. Uh, you and I have debated this several times over the last six months. Uh, it seems the Archbishop is basically saying this is wonderful, let this continue. Uh, there was a court judgment recently where three Iranians who'd previously been convicted of trafficking suddenly are told they haven't committed a crime. Um, how do you anticipate uh, this illegal trade will shape up in 2022? Um, I think it's, it's going to get worse. Um, look, the Archbishop's comments, we expect that from the leader of the Anglican Christian community. If we don't expect them to have compassion, and I think there's a story of the, the Good Samaritan, is when somebody helps a refugee. So it's not unusual for the Archbishop to, to have these thoughts. It's perfectly reasonable expected from him. This is the thing, though, that we will get an increase of refugees coming over here, so long as they come from a country where there's well-founded fear of persecution, for one of the convention reasons. The, you won't stop this flow of people. What we need is an integrated international solution. Uh, first of all, a treaty with France to deal with these people who are, may have well have claimed asylum in France already. We can't send them back. And if the, and French, won't, and if the French won't sign one? Then uh, I'm afraid we have an obligation under the treaty to accept um, and consider their asylum applications. That's what we've signed up to. The reality is, though, that the 28,000 that you mentioned yeah. is only a quarter of the 100,000 or so that came over 20 years ago. The actual numbers are a lot less so and have been decreasing over a number of years. It I just mean, so, so what? happens so what? They're, more, they're more visible. Well, the, 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 the so what is that we take considerably less asylum seekers than Germany and France. So Germany what? take so over 100,000. We so have what? an obligation. We're signed up to a treaty, Nigel. Well, well... That's I, a legal like, obligation we have. Right? We signed up to so the European clear, It's not illegal to come to claim asylum. It's certainly not illegal to come on a boat. Perfectly legal to do that. There's nothing illegal, illegal about those... It's, so you're saying... 
under the international treaties that we've signed with the UN, it's perfectly legal to destroy your ID documents and cross the English Channel and come to this country. Well, you tell me of the offence that's committed. Well, I tell you what I think we should do. We got rid of the European Treaty by leaving the European Union. I think we're going to have to rethink our 1951 commitments to the United Nations. I think they're out of date. Ivan, we're going to discuss this in the new year, Pleasure. because next year, next year, it's going to be 50,000 or 60,000, and you always put the case extremely well. Thank you, and a happy new year to you. Now, a confession. I have not been getting to bed much over the course of the last few weeks. Uh, the reason is that I'm a cricket fanatic. I'm up watching the ashes. It starts at midnight. It's agony. It is misery. It is going so badly and Melbourne words fail me. In a moment, we'll analyse what the hell is wrong with English cricket with Alan Lamb, former great English cricket star. Well, just before we go into our Ashes counselling session, your responses to my question, should the hunt continue? Chris says, why protest against something that's banned? It's a fantastic day out with the horses and the hounds. Well, that's very much the view that I take. Richard says, I agree with most of what you say, Nigel, but hunting with dogs is wrong and evil when you see them rip a fox apart. No, no, sorry, we get... That's done. 15 years, it's been illegal to do that. That is not the current debate. The current debate is about trail hunting. Uh, and so that's a very, very different thing. But it raises huge passions. It always has raised huge, huge passions. Liam says to me, whilst farmers have a real reason to kill foxes if they pose a risk to their livestock or poultry, I personally believe that allowing a pack of dogs... No, 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 you're all going back. This is done. It's done. It's done. It's over. Julia says, let the hunt carry on, especially trail hunting. That's what we're doing. Foxes carry diseases. Yeah, look, foxes in the country need to be controlled. And you know what, folks? If they are controlled, you'll see more hares, you'll see, you'll see more ground-nesting birds and all sorts of things. Uh, and, and anyone that has ever kept poultry will tell you that if foxes are not controlled, they will simply kill the lot and they do it for pleasure. Malcolm says, the hunts have not stopped hunting. They break the law by pretending to be trail hunting. I have seen them collect young foxes recently to release in front of those on the trail. Well, listen, that is law-breaking. That is part of the argument that Petter were making. Now, as I said before the break, I'm losing a lot of sleep. I'm not quite sure why I'm putting myself through this agony because England are doing incredibly badly. Well, joining me to analyse what the hell is going wrong is former England cricketer Alan Lamb. Alan, good evening. Nigel, how are you? Hello there. Well, I mean, it's great to speak to you. It always is. But I, Alan, I can't help it. You know, I'm there at midnight with a glass of wine and I keep saying to myself, today's going to be better. Um, and we saw in Melbourne today uh, the worst opening to an innings by an England team in an Ashes match since 1904. Um, it's... And I'm, I'm watching the attack. And, Alan, you batted against... You batted against some of the best and the fastest bowlers the world has ever seen. And I'm watching this Australian attack. And, yes, they're good bowlers, and they move the ball, and line and length 
They're not that frightening, though, really, are they? Oh, <laughs> well, that didn't work out very well, did it? Hopefully, Lammy will come back and tell us what's wrong. And tell yeah, us, we are. Uh, Nige, we're back. Oh, we're back, we're back, we're back. Yeah, good. I was just saying, Alan, they're not that good a bowl as the Australians, are they? Um, no, no, listen. First of all, I just want to start with your fox hunting because yeah. I'd like to get in early because I think everyone for themselves and, as you say, if you don't cull anything in life, they will carry on and be bourbon. So I totally agree with you saying it's about fox hunting should carry on. Okay, let's get back to the fox hunting between Australia and the kangaroos. <laughs> now, now we have a problem because these little arrogant kangaroos are getting a little bit over the head above us. But I want to just say one thing. Preparation is massive when you go to Australia and you have to arrive there in that country at least a month before, play all the shield states and 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 then see what happens because you can't just arrive there you've got to have that kookaburra ball and you've got to be prepared and i don't think our guys were prepared okay COVID, yeah bang on they can't do anything so but besides all that first test match wrong selection wrong toss yes Second, yes. second, Adelaide, team selection wrong, okay? Melbourne, they get it right, but why are they going to play Jack Leash now? Um, Root could be playing, and, and he should be bowling. I mean, poor Jack Leach doesn't know where he's going at the moment. Alan, you know, Joe Root is a fantastic batsman, um, a great inspiration to young cricketers, learning how to bat and all the rest of it. Is he the right fella to be captain? Well, I, 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 would, I don't know who else could do it, right? Um, I put my money on Joe Root. The guy's intelligent. He's a lovely guy. He's got... Listen, I, I, I just think he's under so much pressure. But what I feel is that Silverwood should be taking that pressure off of him. I mean, the task. Why would you... Honestly, bat first when you haven't had any middle practice at all. Well, that was my Brisbane. question, really, wasn't it? That was my question. I saw that and couldn't believe that he did it. But he did, and I know it's, I know it's a tough job. Alan, just on a one last thought on this. I mean, we are the 50 over world champions. That remarkable game we won against New Zealand. Uh, we, got we, were the lucky. Final. we were lucky. We, we, we were, were lucky, lucky, but it was... We were lucky, I agree with that, but, hey, we were there, we were in the final, we were competing, we got through. The 2020, we got through to the final and we lost. So, the England team, at the shorter form of the game, are doing pretty blooming well. What's got to happen for our Test match cricket to recover? OK, so let's start with canny cricket. So what they're going to do with canny cricket now, it starts in... Uh, in April, April, May, they're going to cram in about 10 county games. So it'll be all seeming wickets, so you won't have a spinner coming into the game. So that's a big problem. We don't have a spinner. So what's going to happen then, straight into all the, the ODI games, the 2020s or the big hundreds, and then they'll finish off the season with, um, uh, you know, the four-day game. 
But the big problem, I think, Nigel, is, is, is that we do not have the old four-day game. It's not going to happen because the amount of cricket that play. So we used to play against Joel Garner, Viv Richards, all the great players at county cricket. But it's not going to happen now. So when these guys come out of county cricket and they play test cricket, they're so vulnerable. Yeah. And yeah, it's, that it's, is the big, yeah, that is the big problem. They're vulnerable. They've never been there. It's like rabbits in front of the headlights. And and then we have two openers, Burns and Hamid. Shame, the poor guys are struggling. Now, Crawley, to me, I think is a fantastic player. I would have had him in straight away. Now yeah, you well, bring I, him and you put him under pressure. Alan, and, so and, would I. So would I. Well, look, I tell you what, let's hope it all gets better. And I look forward to seeing you at Lord's come the summer. All right? That was Alan Lamb. And, yeah, cricket's changed. All the money, the pressure is for the shorter form of the game. Now, talk about what the Farage. This is extraordinary. The booster. Get the booster. Get boosted. It was even on the envelopes that came through before Christmas. Adverts all over the newspapers. Well, now we're being told that more than six million people's booster immunity may already have waned by the new year. Data shows that, that and, and actually, after 10 weeks, your protection is down to about 35%. So guess what, folks? There's now going to be a fourth jab. And indeed, in Israel, one of the most heavily vaccinated countries in the world, already they are giving fourth doses to the over-60s. Uh, and I have to say, you know, we were told by the government, get the double shot... And that'll be the end of our problems. It wasn't. We were told by the government, get the booster and all will be fine against Omicron. And it's perfectly clear that it isn't. And I just wonder, you know, come this time next year, what will we be, what are we going to be on, the fifth or the sixth jab? Um, this doesn't seem to be a vaccine in the way that a BCG was. You know, 13 years old, you get the BCG, that's it. You don't catch tuberculosis at any point in your life. This is very different. And I wonder why. I wonder whether that's why. Only 56% of people so far have had the booster. There seems to be a big chunk of the population who've said, nope, I've had the double vax. I'm not going to get the booster because this starts a process that may never end. We need to have a bigger debate around this, I think. Another what the Farage, I can't believe this. A mortgage lender, Habito, is letting home buyers borrow up to seven times their income, well above the normal rate of, say, four to five times salary. Habito says it will give more people the opportunity to buy a property outside of their price range. This definitely revives debate about responsible lending practices. <coughs> Actually, I'll tell you what it does. It takes us back to the bad old days, doesn't it? Lend people huge amounts of money, but do it at a time of low interest rates. And then when the rates go up, just repossess their properties. Some of us are old enough to have seen it all before. I'm horrified by this. We're going back to the worst excesses that we saw in the mortgage market with Northern Rock and all the events that happened pre-2008. And I'm not very happy about it at all. Schools. Well, this really is a what the farage. It's very, very worrying indeed to me because plans are now being drawn up to send whole year groups home. Uh, and this is very, very disturbing indeed. Uh, the Omicron variant is leading, uh, they believe, when schools go back to serious 
staff, staff shortages. Uh, there's been a big call out for retired teachers to come back to the fold. Lots have applied. How quickly they can be processed, I don't know. Why does this matter? Well, on average, a student, a boy or girl at school, goes to school for 190 days a year. And in Northern England, Northern Ireland, Scotland, already those youngsters have missed over 60 days of learning. You know, they've missed a third of the school year and already plans are being made for whole year groups to be sent home. We've got to find a better way of doing this. This just isn't working. We can't every time a new variant arrives uh, take away the opportunity for our youngsters to get the right kind of education. Something better needs to happen. In a moment, we'll be on Talking Pints. I'll be joined by Marc Francois, one of the Spartans, one of those that resisted Theresa May. It's that time again. Yes, the GB News pub is open and we're joined by Marc Francois. Marc, welcome to Talking Pints. Thank you very much. Your good health. Now, 20 years, Member of Parliament. The big news today is, you know, Wales, Scotland, Northern Ireland, nightclubs closing, all sorts of restrictions coming in. Sajid Javid has said tonight, no more restrictions in England until at least the new year. Mm -hmm. And they're kind of telling us to use our common sense. They're kind of saying that it's not for the government to micromanage every aspect of our lives. I mean, I am cheering this to the rafters, and I'm thinking to myself, about 100 of you misbehaved horribly the other week and went against your Prime Minister. Is that what's really going on here? Well, it's remarkable how a backbench rebellion of 101 MPs <laughs> focuses minds, isn't it? Yeah. But, you know, let's not be churlish. This is the right decision. Yeah, it is. And, you know, well done, Prime Minister. Yeah. And, you know, we're asking people to use their common sense. We're being conservatives. We're trusting in the good sense of the British people. And so I think this is the correct decision because, look, what are we going to do? Are we going to do this every year? Is this going to become an annual ritual? So at some point, we have to trust people to exercise their nous, and I believe that's the essence of the decision, and I believe it's the right thing to do. And yeah. I say that as someone whose partner works in the NHS. I mean, you know, two or three weeks ago, he was talking about an emergency and all the rest of it, um, which maybe was as much about a political distraction as it was about anything else. But the good news is the hospitalisations are not going through the roof, even though case rates are. Mark, it's really interesting, looking at your career, you know, you, and you did stuff before politics, which, which is great. Mm -hmm. You know, you actually worked in the private sector, which is great, because too few people, it seems to me, you know, there's too much of this Oxbridge PPE stuff going on. But 20 years you've been there, and you were climbing the ladder quite successfully, weren't you? Because you had a, ver a series of shadow appointments in the early days when Blair and then Brown were in power. Yeah. I worked for George Osborne, I worked for William Hague... I worked indirectly for Cameron when I was the Shadow Europe Minister. You know, so, yeah. you know, I worked for some of the best that we had, really. Yeah. Yeah, and, and you were, you know, on a quite a good career path progression. Um, and then, you know, you get ministerial position, the armed forces job, which I know you particularly love. Oh, I, I, a great and, privilege. And, to and, and you took that very, very seriously. Um, 
And now you're a rebellious backbencher. Where did it all go wrong, Mark Francois? Uh, um, I'll tell you where it went wrong. <laughs> if wrong is the, if, is the, is the correct word. Um, we had a referendum on whether or not to leave the European Union. Mm -hmm. After much debate, in which you and I played our part, the British people voted democratically and peacefully to leave the EU. If you remember, the government put around a booklet, nine million pounds of I taxpayers' do. money, which famously said, this is your decision, the government will implement what you decide. I, I took mine back to Downing Street. But well, I've still, got, <laughs> I've still got mine. No, I took it back. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, you know, so the British people said, thank you much, we've decided to leave. And the government said, ah, oh, that's the wrong decision. So they produced something called the Withdrawal Agreement, mm -hmm. which did exactly the opposite of what it said on the tin, which would, when you work through all the Euro gobbledygook in the world, yeah. and as you know as well as I do, you're a former MEP, how these things are written, the essence of the Withdrawal Agreement was it would have kept us in the European Union forever. And so I and a group of MPs who read the blooming thing and understood that fought tenaciously to mm. stop it. The Spartans. The, Sp the so-called Spartans. And I've written a book called Spartan Victory, yeah. which you very kindly allowed me to mention. Yeah. And um, that tells our story. It tells why we fought to the bitter end, why we defeated the government three times with others, because we knew what was at stake... And if they got that through, we would have been trapped in the EU forever, despite I, I the democratic decision I, of the British Mark, people. I agree with you, and thank God for the Spartans. Um, very interesting, though, isn't it, that there were three votes, and a certain Mr Johnson, uh, and even Jacob Rees-Mogg, which I couldn't believe, on the third time of asking, caved mm -hmm. um, and voted for this dreadful agreement, which I, I have to say I was deeply disappointed by. No, look, what you did was great because the Tory party didn't have the guts to get rid of Theresa May. They had the chance, and you gave me the opportunity to come in with the Brexit party, get the Conservatives their worst result in 200 years, and she was gone. So I think between, between you guys within and us without, you know, we did guarantee that we would get Brexit. But you know something? Where Brexit is right now, it's not really as good as it should be, is it? Well, we left the European Union yeah, after, three, after three and a half years, yeah. and forgive me, but what the, the book's called The Inside Story of the Battle for Brexit, and it explains in layman's English what was really going on, what was really in the withdrawal agreement, why it was so cleverly camouflaged, what were all these motions in the Commons, what was the Brady Amendment, what was the Malthouse mm. Compromise. So it actually takes <laughs> the reader behind the scenes into Parliament and explains what was going on. So when people were at home literally shouting at the television yep. about why are these MPs not implementing what we voted for, this explains why they weren't doing it and how a group of us in the end intervened to try and make sure that they did. So it, 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 it takes you behind the scenes and it explains in detail, mm. in everyday English, what was really going on. And that's why I wanted to write it, so there'd be a record of, uh, that, that anybody could understand. I mean, leadership's a very important thing. And Sarah Vine this morning, Sarah Vine this morning, wrote something very, very strong in the mail. Leadership is not about taking the path of least resi resistance or always opting for the safest course of action. As Johnson's great hero, Churchill, showed, it is about making difficult choices in impossible circumstances and ultimately having the courage of your convictions. I think I know what the British Bulldog would have done in this situation today. Let's see what Boris decides. Now, that was Sarah Vine this morning writing, urging him to make the decision that clearly today has been made. But the Conservative Party now is in a, a sense of real crisis. It's led by a man 
who went for Brexit but didn't really fully go for Brexit because he let you down at the last minute like a cheap pair of braces. You won't comment on that, I know. Well, no, I will. Go on. And I say in the book why I think he did it. Go on. Because I think by that stage, Boris and some around him were looking ahead. You know, we were focused absolutely on the treaty. Mm. It was apparent by that stage that Theresa May was not going to get it through. Therefore, she was unlikely to survive, right? And no, I, I no, 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 she was going to survive because well, you guys had the chance the previous December well, no, and you didn't have the guts to do it. Well, well hang on. Well, don't look at me. I'm, I'm, one, of the, I'm it, one of the 112. It need, that... <laughs> but it needed 45 people. It needed 45 people in December 18 to put up a motion of no confidence in a... You didn't do it. Well, no, we, we, we had the vote of no confidence. We got the 48 letters. We had the vote. 200 voted to keep her. Yeah. 117 voted not to keep her. I was one of the, the latter group. Yeah. But by the time you got to, the, to MV3, it was obvious that you know, she couldn't survive much longer. And I think at that point, Boris and some around him had worked that out... And they, if you like, were looking to the future. And I think, at the end of the day, you'd have to have him on and ask him yourself, Nigel. But I suspect that what they were doing is, if you like, they were thinking too tactical. They were thinking too tactical bounds ahead. But by the way, there's a humor. There's a humorous story in here about the time that Boris nearly got shot in Israel about 20. Years <laughs> I've never heard this story. Well, it's in there. Very quickly, we, we <laughs> were on a trip. Us. It was a it was a CFI trip with George Osborne and Theresa Villiers, <laughs> and we were shown this security fence, and we were told how incredibly sensitive it was, and it's got all these don't. Whatever you do, touch the fence. So they take us out of the command centre. What does he do? He walks up to the fence. And he, what happens if I do this? I mean, if I, you know, what's really going to happen? Anyway, about a minute later, <laughs> this jeep comes screaming over the hill. These four Israeli commandos kind of dripping grenades. And this sergeant leaps out of the jeep and he said, who touched the bloody fence? And we all went, him. And, you know, I think if Boris had given him any back chat at that point, look at the, he, might well have been, he might well have been shot, and the whole history of the United Kingdom could be done. Now, I know we have limited time. No, we're OK. And I, 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 and I, I knew you'd written the book, and I was keen to get you on. Yeah. Um, and, and it was a very important thing you did. Uh, very, very important thing that you did. Uh, but it also links... I mean, there's one other thing that I do want to talk to you about, mm. uh, which I think is related to it, is your great friend, Sir David Amos, getting... Yeah murder the way that he did. Yeah. Um, how dangerous is it now being an MP? Well, firstly, I, I, I dedicated the book to Sir David. Right. We were great friends, Nigel. He was genuinely my greatest mate in that place. Yeah. I'd never have been an MP without him. He mentored me when I turned up. And I miss him terribly, to be honest. So, so I dedicated the book partly to his memory. How dangerous is it to be an MP? To some degree, it's always been dangerous. I mean... Uh, Spencer Percival, the British Prime Minister, was assassinated in the Commons in 1812, mm. right? So, so there's always been a certain element of risk involved in the job. But at the end of the day, you know, we, we have a job to do. We have constituents to represent. And what I, I've got to choose my words carefully because there's a trial pending. You'll understand that. Yeah, yeah. But, but nonetheless, the principle shines through. We have to continue to represent those people. And we cannot allow anyone of an intent to break that cord, if you like, between an MP and their constituents. But you should have security. Well, there's a review underway by the House of Commons authorities. I'm not going to preempt that review. I did do... David had some surgeries already booked ahead when mm. what happened in October happened. If you like, I honoured those surgeries and I did them. 
um, and, and tried to help a few of, uh, of his constituents. Uh, I'm not going to preempt the outcome of the review, but one way or another, it is fundamentally important that constituents can still contact. Oh their no, no, MP. no! Absolutely. Look, you know, nobody went out and met more people all over the country than I did, year after year after year. But I did it with people with me. Yeah, and I, and I did it with intelligence. Yep. You know, and people checking social media and all those things. How long is Boris going to last as PM? Ultimately, that's in the hands of the electorate. That's the British system. In the short... In the short <laughs> it may, well, it may not be. <laughs> well, no. Ultimately. I, mean, I mean, we don't vote for prime ministers. Yes, but we have a well-established well, system where the, the, the leader of the winning party... How much longer are you lot going to put up with him? I mean, you know, you're eight, he's eight points behind in the polls. All right, they're mid-term polls, and I get that. Uh, today's judgment, today's decision is a good one, but in yeah. many, many ways, it doesn't even... I was with two former Tory MPs this morning. Mm. Both of whom said to me they haven't renewed their party subscriptions. They didn't even recognise the party as being conservative. Nigel, I, I, have, I sort of have a reputation for kind of a bit like you, <laughs> if I make so bold, of sort of saying what I think. Here's what I think. Boris's fate lies in his own hands. There are a lot of people in the Conservative Party who are concerned about the direction that we've mm. taken in the last six to nine months. If Boris listens to that and he reacts to it accordingly... I think he can lead us into the next election and win it. I genuinely believe that. If he doesn't listen to those concerns, if he doesn't listen to the sort of yeah. muttering below deck, mm. you know, then there could, could be trouble. So uh, my honest answer to your question is it really depends on Boris himself and whether he'll listen to advice and whether perhaps he'll get some different advice from some right. different people. Well, lots of weathers, lots of... Mark, thank you for coming on. Lastly... I write in here, in all sincerity, I won't read it out because I won't embarrass you, and you, your viewers should know, you didn't know I was going to do this, but I believe it to be true that if you'd never been born, we would still be in the European Union. And I, and I explain why in this book. Thank you. So if you would allow me, this is for you. That's terrific. Thank you very much indeed. That was Marc Francois on Talking Pints. <laughs> Cheers. <laughs>
Uh, uh, but uh, if you want to, if you really want to understand the insides of it, please buy Spartan Victory, <laughs> which is available on Amazon in <laughs> hardback, paperback, there and Kindle are. versions. There you are. It's discounted already. I can just tell. Clive <laughs> on, on GB Views asks: Is the UK showing symptoms of becoming? a failed or failing state. Well, not compared to our neighbours, is what I'd say to that. And whatever's wrong in this country, I'm still actually very bullish about our future compared to our European neighbours, partly because of Brexit, uh, but actually partly because, uh, you know, as an English-speaking uh, country, uh, it gives us big advantages in terms of tech sector and everything else. And look where foreign direct investment is flooding. When it comes into this time zone, it is coming overwhelmingly into this country, and that will continue. An anonymous viewer asks me, do you miss President Trump on Twitter? We all miss President <laughs> Trump on Twitter. The New York Times miss President Trump on Twitter. CNN miss President Trump on Twitter. He, I mean, he kept the debate going. The fact that the leaders of the Taliban were on Twitter the day that Kabul fell and he was banned uh, says to me there's something very worrying here. One more. Gareth asks, hi, Nigel, how was Christmas for you? It was very, very good indeed, uh, with family, uh, and I have to say, the highlight was the Queen's speech. Wasn't she magnificent? As ever. As we, ever. Better than ever, I think. We, we, are, we are truly blessed to have we had are. a sovereign of her quality. No, we are. I think, I think it was the best ever. It was personal. It was real. Uh, and she admitted she watches old films, even though she knows the endings. And that was a very nice <laughs> human side to it. Uh, and I thought it was terrific. I really, really did. <laughs>